Anyway, if you have your Bibles, please join me in Hebrews 10, 19 to 25. Hebrews 10, 19 to 25. Uh, So we're going through Hebrews, not chapter by verse, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, but some of the more uh, important scriptures in Hebrews. We've, We've seen a lot already. I don't can't remember when I started it, but it's been at least a couple of months. Uh, enter his rest. Um, Jesus is the final word. There were so many things that we've looked at. Basically, dealing with the temple. Because the Jews were all about the temple. And then the writer of Hebrews is saying, look, we have a high priest. That high priest is Jesus Christ. You no longer need the priest. And by the way, Jesus ushers in the new covenant. And when we look at the Old Testament, you take the word testament, that means covenant. You have the old covenant and you have the new covenant. So when Jesus arrives on the scene, he inaugurates a new covenant, a new way of doing business with God. And the writer of Hebrews, uh, it's still unknown who he is. Some say Paul, some say uh, Barnabas, some say others. We don't really know, but we do know that it was canonized and that it was approved. So today we want to talk about entering by the blood. Entering by the blood. Um, The writer here mentions, first of all, to draw near to God. You'll notice in verse 19, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter into the holy places... And again, those we'll review that very quickly, but this comes on the heels of this. In chapter 10, verse 15, And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us, for after saying, This is the covenant that I will make with them in the days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws in their heart, and I will write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins no more, and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer an offering for sin. So the issue here is by entering this, uh, this place of confidence, by the, by the way, uh, the word confidence, parousia, is a state of boldness, sometimes implying intimidating circumstances. And when you think about talking about going into the holy places, of course, in the Jewish mindset, we can't do that. Only the priests can go into those places. And yet the writer is saying, look, you have confidence. You can go into the holy of holies in the presence of God with full assurance and full confidence. Now, just by way of reminder, we we talked about Uh, The priest would put the blood on the four horns. He would offer the sacrifice. Then he would wash himself ritually. Some scholars see that as the resurrection of Christ. And then once the priest did that, he would go in uh, to the table of showbread, 12 loaves representing the 12 tribes of Israel, the menorah, which was seven candlesticks, the six days of creation, and on the seventh day, the center candlestick would be that God rested. And then the uh, altar of incense, you remember, sometimes if the priest that on Yom Kippur, the one day, the day of atonement, he would go in. If he felt uneasy, he would put 
blood on those four horns before he went in there because you didn't go in there if you weren't a priest. So when the Jews hear this, you can see where they might be a little intimidated. What do you mean we can go into the Holy of Holies? What, what do you mean we can go in the presence of God? We've never been able to do that. And so the issue here, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places, the writer was specifically making reference to the holy place and the most holy place. And, you know, if you hear somebody preach something that is not correct, you know it, and you become uncomfortable. So if you think about this from the Jewish perspective, wait a minute. <laughs> I don't think that's right. I don't think we can go into the holy place because hundreds and hundreds of years, only the priest could go in there, and he can only go into the holy of holies once a year. So this would be difficult, but he said it over and over again. We, we've gone through the, through the temple. Uh, Zane Hodges notes this in his commentaries, the readers are new covenant people who should have confidence to come into the very presence of God. The idea is enriched by the old covenant imagery, God's presence in the most holy place and the curtain that was once a barrier to man is a barrier no longer. Let me remind us, when Jesus died on the cross, the veil of the temple was rent in two. And the symbolic nature of the, the temple curtain being rip, rent in two was that now as believers in Jesus Christ, we can come into the very presence of God. You have that access. And you can feel confident about that. You don't need me, you don't need the deacons, although we for structure purposes and leadership purposes, we do need. But you don't need us to bring you into the presence of God. You can do that yourself. Um, Ephesians 3.12, in him and through faith in him, we can approach God with freedom and confidence. That's right. You, kids, teenagers, those of you that have called on Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you have access. You can go into the very presence of God, and you can talk with him. Also, not only that, Hebrews 4.16 says this, let us there, in the same author, by the way, therefore let us come boldly to the throne of grace that we may find mercy and grace to help in time of need. Listen, when, when Jesus died and, he, and that veil was torn in two, the place in which we live as believers is in the very presence of God. We have the Holy Spirit that comes into our heart, and he gives us access to God through Jesus Christ. We enter through the blood, and here's the issue. Here's the real issue. In the Old Testament, the sin was put on the animal person was never actually on the altar. So they would give a lamb or a dove or a, a goat or a bull, and, and the priest would then transfer the sin onto the animal, and the animal was killed. Fast forward to the New Testament. 
the sin was put on Christ on the cross as he was dying. Jesus on the cross, I honestly believe this with all of my heart, when he said, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? At that moment, for the first time ever, God was separated from Christ. And here you have the writer of Hebrews saying, look, you can come boldly into the Holy of Holies. You have access, but it has to be through Christ. It cannot be through anything else. Now, this is interesting. Verse 20. Now, he just said that we can go into the holy places. Look at verse 20. This tripped me up, to be perfectly honest with you. <laughs> I said, this cannot possibly be right, and, but I was right. Uh, after looking at this, it's a, such a small word. And somebody asked me one time, why do you study so deep? Well, the congregation can only go as deep as the pastor can go. So if the pastor is not going deep, the sheep are not going to be deep. The problem is in most megachurches, you have a big church that are about an inch deep. Because it's, I don't know, it's my... I did watch Newt Larson this week. I, just, I was typing in scripture and he came up and, and I was watching and he was talking about the solar system and I go, wow, awesome. You have confidence to enter the holy places by the new and living way opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh. And I really was just going to pass this word over, the word new. And again, when I translated it, I go, can't possibly be right. And so I translated it three different times, following the etymology of the word. And, uh, and that word means, you ready for this? Prospatos. Something that is freshly slaughtered. I don't often do this because you guys might fall asleep like a bedtime story. <laughs> so I said, okay, that can't possibly rewrite freshly slaughtered. So every commentary that I read, this is what John MacArthur said. The word new is only used once in the New Testament. Its original meaning meant freshly slaughtered. Jesus, the new way, the freshly slaughtered sacrifice, who opens the way to God. It seems contradictory that the freshly slaughtered way would also be the living way. But Jesus' death conquered death and gives life. His death is the only way to everlasting life. Learn something new this week. So when we talk about Jesus is the new and living way, it is a constant reminder that the new and living way was paid for by the blood of Christ, that he was the fresh kill of the sacrificial system. And therefore, because he is the new way, he also gives life in a living way. Therefore, by his death, he provides for me life. By his death, 
in the perfect sacrifice of Jesus Christ. He is the perfect lamb that was slain on my behalf. My sin, your sin, was laid on Christ. And he paid for it once and for all so that you can come boldly before the throne of grace and find anger and all that. No, find mercy and grace. Mercy is what God gives us in which by and in of ourselves we do not deserve. But it was paid for because Christ was slaughtered on the cross. That's an interesting way of looking at the death of Christ. He was slaughtered. And when you think about Jesus Christ carrying his cross, and you think about he was spit on, he was, he was beaten, he had a crown of thorns on his head, he was bleeding, and he was dying. That is a slaughtered sacrifice in which God looks down and his son for the first time in all eternity has sin laid upon him. My sin, your sin. And how in the world can we just go on about our lives and, and give it like, oh yes, Jesus died for me. He was slaughtered. He was slaughtered. And so we go about our lives, living our lives nonchalantly. We need to get back to that idea that he was slaughtered. That really... Uh, I was surprised by that word, and I wasn't even going to look at it. Because you think new is something simple. <laughs> That's why I recommitted myself to go each word now. <laughs> the new and living way. And by the way, did you know that the early church was called the way? It was. The Apostle Paul, Acts 9.2 but Saul, still breathing threats and murders against the disciples of the Lord, this is Paul, the guy that wrote 27% of the New Testament, and asked him for letters to the synagogue, synagogue at Damascus. So if he found anybody belonging to the way, men or women, that he might put them in prison. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. And that is our freshly slaughtered sacrifice saying that if you come to me, my death will satisfy a holy and righteous God on our behalf. And so the writer could confidently say, hey, you have confidence. You can go because... On that altar, Jesus Christ, the, the cross, on that altar, he was sacrificed. I love this picture, but it's a constant reminder. The lamb. The lamb, the perfect lamb, will go to the cross, and just like the priest will slaughter that lamb. And Christ was without sin. Christ was perfect. And he had to be perfect to make the sacrifice work. Now we look at the next thing is the closeness. And since we have a high priest over the house of God, 
Let us draw near. Let us draw near. To move forward to a reference point with the possible implication in certain context. Listen to this. A reciprocal relationship between the person, I'm just reading from the Greek, between the person approaching and the one who is approached. You ready for this? By the magic of PowerPoint. This is us. When you go before the throne of God, you go right into the very presence of God. It's simple. It's really simple. One thing I like to do when, um, one thing I like to do when I am praying is I, is I get an image of a holy God on his throne and I just shut my eyes and I pretend that I am in the very presence of God. And for some reason, it draws me close to him. And, and <clears throat> the word here re re refers to not only do I draw close to God, but he draws close to me. God is not so transcendent that he cannot be felt or seen. God is imminent in the presence of the Holy Spirit, and we can draw close to him with a heart, with a true heart, in full assurance of faith, with our heart sprinkled clean. This is verse 21. With our heart sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with the pure word. I liked Ray Stedman's four observations about this. I didn't put it up there because it's, it's kind of lengthy, but I want to kind of give you an overview of it. Ray Stedman, in his commentary in the IVP, InterVarsity Inter Press Commentary, gave four observations. First of all, the true heart is the genuine inner self. It is without religious pretense. In other words, we come before God and we don't fake it like the Pharisees who loved standing on the corners, being so pious. Listen, God knows us. He knows your heart. He knows my heart. And therefore, when we come before him, we just lay our hearts bare. We don't do it to be seen by men. Oh, look at he's so pious. He's so religious but in actuality could very well be faking it for an audience. A true heart is one of a genuine inner self. When we say, Father, this is me. I'm sorry. I sinned. I stumbled. I fell. And Lord, I ask you to forgive me. And that's pretty much it. Your sins will be forgiven. And we can come before him. Very simple. You draw close to God, and God will draw close to you. Secondly, with, with our heart sprinkled clean. This is an interesting word, and it means without guilt. Listen, I've seen Christians live in the past so long that they cannot function in the present. Something that they did back in 
1972, and they've not been able to shake it. I'm telling you, if you have repented of that, it is done. It is under the blood of Christ. It is forgiven. You don't need to live like a second-class citizen. You don't need to carry that guilt. You know who wants you to carry that guilt? Satan wants you to carry that guilt to where you feel unworthy before God. And technically, none of us are worthy in front of God. It's only by the blood of Jesus that we're made worthy. It's only by Christ. It's amazing. And, and don't, don't beat yourself up and don't live there. Live for today. Full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean. Let me, let me go back. I, I want to go back, and I brought this out last week. Um, you remember the red heifer? Because I think there's an allusion here to the red heifer. Uh, and the, the red heifer was, was obviously killed, and the priest would put the blood on the four horns of the altar seven times. I think the number seven for the Jewish people is a good one. That's the one where God rested. There's, there's an allusion here to a sacrifice that is complete, that is not lacking. So the, the, the red heifer was also born with, uh, burned with a red uh, scarlet thread inside. And then one, once that bull was killed, the ashes of that bull were then taken outside for those of you that missed, were taken outside the camp. It had to be by somebody who was clean and was taken outside and there would be water there. And when somebody felt like, oops, I, I, I sinned, they would take the water and the ashes, mix them together, and they would sprinkle them. You say, Pastor Mike, where do you get that stuff from? Well, study. <laughs> but... A man who is clean shall gather up the ashes of the red heifer and deposit them outside the camp, and they shall be kept for the water, for impurity, for the congregation of Israel. It is a sin offering. So uh, you have here our hearts sprinkled clean. Do you know what is shed abroad in your hearts? Do you know? The blood of Christ. When God looks at you, right here in our church, when God looks at you, do you know what he sees? His son and the blood that was shed and it was applied. Where do we get that from? We get that from Moses, the 10th plague, when they put blood over the doorpost. And the, and the angel of death went through, and if the blood was not on the doorpost, you died, the firstborn. The blood of Christ covers all of our sin. Leave today knowing that. And the only one that's going to bring up your past is in opposition to God. Now the question is, what about the last one? Our bodies washed with water. Uh, let me just, if you had a, just, I'll give you some thoughts. What scholars said, and then I'll give you what I think. Number one, it could be referring to baptism. An outward sign when we do the baptism. Uh, 
could be an outward sign. It could be a righteous lifestyle because Christ has blood has covered us. It could refer to a righteous lifestyle. But it could also refer to salvation. The cleansing by the Holy Spirit that takes place in our hearts. I think it's probably a combination of those. Whatever it is, it's true that your sins are forgiven. And therefore, in light of that, you can draw close to God on your own. You have confidence. He's opened a new, slaughtered, living way. And you can have confidence in that. You can go to God whenever and with whatever you need to talk to him about. Now, not only do we draw near to God, but we hold fast to the faith. We hold fast to the faith. Let us hold fast. This is verse 23. We are getting close. Hang in there a page and a half. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. Kadako means to keep from. And obviously the object of keeping from is the wavering. The word confession means to publicly and openly express your allegiance to somebody. So this really refers to, we do in baptism, it's a public profession of faith. But it means as we live our lives that we've had an allegiance to Christ. Why do we have an allegiance to Christ? Well, we have an allegiance to Christ because of what he did for us and the agony that he went through. And so therefore, as I've trusted in Jesus Christ and the blood of Christ has covered my sins, therefore, I'm going to hold fast to that confession. I am not going to let that confession go. El peace is the word for hope, which means to look forward with confidence and, of course, wavering is standing firm. And I think it starts with the allegiance, because if you're not... If your allegiance isn't to Christ, you're not going to stand firm. Dan Compton pictured here today. There he is. And Nola also pictured. Sent me something this week that kind of rattled me. And let me just say this. I like women. I'm married to one. And let me, let me say this, Dan wanted me to have this article. It's called Twisted Scripture. I don't know if you're familiar with this heretic. Let me just say this unequivocally, women are not called to be pastors and stand in the pulpit. That's extremely clear. There's no way around it. But I'm going to tell you this, women bring a lot to the table for ministry. And I've had good counsel from my wife. Don't do this. You better do that. But the pulpit is for men. Women are not supposed to be in the pulpit. And if you want me to apologize, forget it. 
because the Bible is very clear that women are not to be in the pulpit. Now, having said that, this woman, and you're right, Dan, it did get me fired up. It got me fired up. This feminist theologian, so-called, this feminist theologian, Rebecca Peters, was trying to say that the Apostle Paul supported women preachers. She also said this, which was quite shocking if you go listen to the... She said this. God actually lied to Eve. Now right there, I'm surprised the church didn't pick her up and throw her out. God actually lied to Eve. Listen to this. Go watch it. Check it out. God lied to Eve. Satan, who tempted her, said, you will not, you'll not die. He was trying to enlighten Eve and make God a liar. And then she goes on to say, as I almost threw my computer across the room, went on to say, I will not let conservative pastors take my God away from me. She doesn't worship the same God that I do. God cannot lie. And why she would say that. And you see how people who may start out and they've got their faith held, they start listening to this garbage from the pulpit. They start letting go of that. And before long... They're given to all kinds of weird stuff. Hebrews 6, 18 and 19. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have a strong encouragement to hold fast the hope set before us, which is here. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor for the soul. It is an anchor for the soul. Do not unhook the anchor. The anchor will keep you strong in the midst of troubles and trials and heartaches. Don't listen to garbage. Somebody said before church, Pastor Mike, what I like about you is you actually believe what you're preaching. And I believe this with every fiber of my being or I wouldn't even be standing here. Here you have, we have this sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place beyond the curtain. That's awesome. Don't let somebody rob you of your joy. And there's pulpits today that are filled with all kinds of heretical teaching. You know, way back in Bible college, Dr. Windsor, he doesn't, he was never as energetic as I was, but one day in class, as he gave us an outline of what a sermon should look like, and we start going through it, I looked at that simple outline, which is by today's standards in my understanding A, B, C, D, E, F, G type thing. But I remember sitting in class that day and looking at Dr. Windsor and I said, I am going to commit myself 
to be the best preacher that I can be. And part of being the best preacher that I can be is studying the text. So when I stand up to teach you on Sunday morning, you can maybe catch one or two things that you can go out into the world with this next week and apply to your life. I've always done that. Every preacher needs to surrender to the sermon. Somebody, Newt Larson said, boy, you really love, don't you? I said, yeah. I love it. I love preaching. So why do we hold fast to this confession? Because God is faithful. He was faithful in salvation. He was faithful to forgive us our sins. He was faithful in redemption, buying you back. His immense love for you is demonstrated right there. That's how much God loves you. Not a Joel Osteen type love you, but I'm going to tell you God loves you. Yes, we're going to sin. Yes, we're going to stumble. Yes, we're going to fall. And we're going to get up on Monday morning and we'll start the process over again. But I'm going to tell you, in the grand scheme of God's grace and mercy, He loves you. Don't ever think, oh, I've met people, they just think that God hates them. I want you to know God loves you with an everlasting love. And out of that wonderful being slaughtered and out of God's great love and mercy, I want to live my life to please him. And so, God is faithful. I know at times in our life, God is always late. Right? God's always late. At least I think so at times. But God is faithful. Here's the last one. Community. So we draw near to God and we hold fast to the faith. And let us consider, listen to this, it's very, very important. And let us consider how to stir one another to love and good works. Let us consider means to think about through observation. So the writer is saying, in the congregation of God, which we are, let us consider, let us think through observation how I can encourage Nola on the library board how I can encourage John, how I can encourage Susan, how I can encourage Jan, how I can encourage Ruth. When I see that they're struggling, how can I, through observation, encourage the people that I see in our church? How can I do that? That means we get involved. We come to church on Sunday morning. See you next Sunday. Never involved in each other's lives. Never growing as a community. But hey, we'll see you next Sunday, right? 
And it's hard to do when you're not here. He says, let us stir up. It can mean sharp disagreement, but more than likely it means cheering each other on. I love this picture. Look at this woman. She's cheering. Go, keep going. Listen, we are here to cheer for one another. We're here to build each other up. God gave me this one because I'm not smart enough to come up with it. But he, this is what I felt like God gave me. You don't come to church, and I actually highlighted it on my outline and circled it so I wouldn't forget because sometimes I have those senior moments when I forget. Yeah, I know. Yeah, I got it. You don't come to church to be beat up. You come to church to be built up. You do not come to church to be beat up. You come to church to build each other up. Ray Steadman in his commentary wrote this. The supportive love of Christians for one another is a powerful factor in maintaining spiritual vigor. It needs to be awakened both in ourselves and others. That does not envision finger-pointing, shaking, and lecturing, but encouraging one another. Listen, if I could say one thing here in this section, just encourage people. Well, well, well. No, encourage people. In my day, no, encourage people. Be an encourager. Be known as an encourager, not a discourager. Brothers and sisters, let me just say this. Oh, I just did the Southern Baptist term, brothers and sisters. I was told to watch that. You go out these doors here in about 10 minutes. When you go outside there, you're not going to be encouraged too much. In fact, when you openly profess your allegiance to Christ, watch out. We come in here to be encouraged so that we can go out in full assurance. Be known as an encourager. Encourage people. This word love, which is kind of funny, agape, we think it's self-sacrificing love, but not, not what the writer used here. I'm just going to read it to you. A special type of communal meal having particular significance for the early Christians in which they would express their mutual affection and concern for And of course, the works here to good works is deeds. Uh, I don't know. Pastoral theology here. Do a good deed this week. Not because you, you got to keep your salvation. Go out and look for places where you can do good deeds. You see a woman that can't reach the shelf at Walmart. That happened to me. 
Ma'am, can I help you? It's a good deed. I just blew up my reward, but anyway. I used it as an illustration. Look for ways that you can do good deeds this week. And then encourage one another. Send a card of encouragement. Thank people for things. Oh, and by the way, he says here, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. I'm just going to say it. I'm just going to say it. You need to make church a priority. And it's not just to come here, punch a time card, and go home. It's to come here to worship the God who has redeemed us and to love one another and to encourage one another. And there's nothing new under the sun, Solomon said, and it can apply here, as some do. Some don't make it a priority, even back then. I was up late last night watching that great movie till 1.30. I just don't feel like getting out of bed, honey. Men, men, you are in charge of the household. Make sure your wife and your children are here. Not legalistically, please don't misunderstand me, not legalistically, but because you love Jesus and you want to worship. And by the way, I need you. People in this church need you. And somebody walks in and they're migrate to them. What's going on? Can I pray with you? Let me encourage you. How can I minister to you and lift you up? Not mm-hmm. No. Be an encourager. Go out. Do, do something good this week. Do a, do a good deed. Help somebody. Love them. The only way they're going to see the change in you is if you show that change to a world that needs Christ. Okay. Not neglecting meeting together. Make it a priority. Just say, you know what? Whatever happens in our lives, we're going to be at church. 